0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Pearl Gluck has stories to tell, and as a filmmaker, she's been doing so for nearly 20 years. Pearl grew up in the insular, cloistered, tight knit Hasidic community in Brooklyn's Borough Park, but she didn't stay. Pearl left the only life she knew to attend college. She got her undergrad degree at Brandeis and a Master of Fine Arts from City College here in Manhattan. In 1996, 10 years after leaving home, Pearl received a Fulbright grant to travel to Hungary to collect oral histories of her Hasidic past. Her father grudgingly gave her her first video camera to document her trip. In 2000, Pearl was awarded a Sundance Producers Lab Fellowship and then a Sundance Festival Mentorship, allowing her to return to Hungary and chronicle her journey to find a long-lost family heirloom. The result? Pearl's first documentary feature, Divan, in which she also explores her true identity. In the years since, Pearl has made several award-winning short films, including Where Is Joel Baum?, which caused a near-riot on day one of shooting in Brooklyn, but which wound up winning several festival awards, Summer which draws on The Personal, A Lesson in Love, which follows a young Hasidic couple as they ventured out of their segregated community. There's the one-hour TV doc, Soundwalk, Williamsburg, Junior, a 26-minute film about a mother struggling to find her new normal after her teenage son is killed by an off-duty policeman. And now, The Turnout, Pearl's first feature-length film, which explores sex trafficking at rural truck stops. And last but so not least, Academia, Pearl's an assistant professor at Penn State, where she teaches screenwriting and directing. She also taught at Indiana University, Emory, and Rutgers. So let's meet Pearl Gluck. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Wow. Thanks so much, Sandy. I really appreciate it.
0: Pearl, talk to me about growing up in the Hasidic community in Brooklyn, and what propelled you to leave, which is, no pun intended, such an unorthodox thing to do? (laughs)
1: That that's a good one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can use so, it any time.
1: yeah. Well, I mean, where do we start, right? I mean, it's it's interesting because when I look at my work now, I understand the trajectory. But at the time, what was happening for me at that age, and I was about fifteen, is I started to see like a little crack or a riff and started to question where I would fit in this, you know, otherwise very, it's for some people, very beautiful package of faith. Mixed with family and um, ways in which you can get in touch with, you know, who you are, both as women and as men, uh, through your belief in God and in Orthodox Judaism, right? So, it does work for a lot of people. But for me, you know, as uh, I consider my rabbi, Rabbi Leonard Cohen, may he rest in peace, said, you know, there's a crack in everything, and that's where the light gets in, right? So once um, the family structure started to crack a bit, and my parents were getting divorced, it allowed me to ask some questions about where I fit into the system, and I realized in some ways I wasn't going to. As much as I love partnership and relationship, I, I wasn't ready at that point to get married at 18 or 19 or even 20 and have kids right away, as much as I love children, and I really value family. So for me, I just had the need to to learn and to explore and to go to college. I mean, ironically, in some ways, and it almost sounds like a line, but it's real. You know, I snuck out of school and went to the movies.
0: You did that completely on your own?
1: I had another undercover accomplice okay. <laughs> <laughs> who remained in the community, by the way. So she's going to remain undercover. But um, we used to like uh, put our bags in, in our lockers. And you know, I was a really good student, so it was hard to know that that's what I was doing. I mean, I was excelling in school, and so there was no reason to call me into the principal's office. There was a uh, theater in Brooklyn. I would walk for like you know at least a couple of miles to get there uh, watch a movie whichever was playing and then walk back uh, and get on the bus and so that was kind of the beginning of my love for film and I even watched like Ferris Bueller's day off on my day off. <laughs> And um, the one that I saw that really blew my mind was Barbara uh, in The Way We Were, Barbara Streisand. And there's just something about her. Of course, I had no idea who she was at the time. I and mean, now she's my spirit animal. But, you know, at that time, I was like, who is this amazing woman? And I started to learn that she was also brought up in Brooklyn. She was brought up uh, somewhat orthodox and you know, stood her ground with both her body and, and her work it was one of the very first uh, female directors that directed herself in a film, or she's say directors that directed themselves in a film, you know, in Yentel. And just, she really just broke the mold. And there was, once I discovered her, it was uh, down or uphill or sideways or whichever ways from there. And um, I decided I wanted to go to college. Like this, the, I keep remembering this image of her at Harvard, like handing out leaflets. And I'm like, you know, I want to do this. I want to make a difference in this world in the way that I was raised to make a difference in this world. But right? who is supporting
0: Our- you, Pearl? Who is backing you? And who is saying you go girl? Because you know, you said that your parents got divorced, which is also not a very common thing to have happen in your community. So who was your ally? You couldn't have completely been doing this on your own.
1: I love that question because I think it's all about who mentors you to make you the person that you are. It's one of the reasons I teach and it works both ways. So, in the beginning, it was sort of my my secret and I had a buddy, you know, who I would do these things with. But, you know, from a grown-up perspective, I think my mother was a huge inspiration for me. I I don't think she wanted me to do exactly what I was doing at first. But she didn't stop me and and her support and her and her courage, you know, at that time to to do uh, to to stand up for what you want, like she wanted a different life was very admirable for me to watch. And, you know, she and I are very different people. But in terms of courage, she remains a huge inspiration for me. And she's uh, very funny and she (laughs) she's very um, creative. And so in, in some ways, that remained my support. I did have to fight to go out of talent to Brandeis. Um, in terms of support, I'm still paying my student loans, but it was worth every penny. And my aunt, I have an aunt named Rosalie, who's now a chaplain. And, you know, she was also a huge pillar for me. Um, so in other words, a lot of women, a lot of women in my life. And whether or not he appreciates to hear this, my father, you know, because in the end, he could have cut me off completely. Um, and he has not yet and probably won't. And, you know, he's just been a huge, a huge supporter in many ways in that kind of, you know, human level where I I don't feel like a complete and utter letdown for him. Do you have siblings? I have three brothers. Uh, they're all married. Um, they've got uh, lovely children and their children, some of which are married, some of them have children. So, yeah, we're pretty tight, you know, for better or worse, we're a tight-knit, you know, uh, family. And, uh, again, that is also an inspiration. But I wanted to say about my dad. You know, I think it's very easy to vilify the patriarchy and that I come from, and and think of ways in which they uh, they're abusive and overwhelming. But I did not have that experience, so I'm very fortunate not to have been in a, you know the the victim of the extremity of that reality, but there's a place for both matriarchy and patriarchy. And the problem is for me anyway, the balance, right? And so with my dad, I just feel like I get it. I get that struggle of a parent who is super faith-based and really thinks that their success in this world through their children, I think as most parents, they want to, they want to be a good parent, you know, in his case, it would be through raising a child that keeps to the faith and understand and doesn't get, you know, Doomed or damned, you know, in their future life in the world to come. So I think that's extremely scary for him. I get that, but um, for some reason he has seen past that and has been there for me. Or maybe there's just still hope in his in his heart that that I'll come back mm-hmm. and, be, and be orthodox again. But you know, I, I just think that he's a really good example of what building that bridge can look like. And, and I should say that about my whole family, because you know. Not that it's OK if they did that, but they could reject. And I know so many people who have left the Hasidic world who get so violently rejected and so harmed by the system. And I just have to say I'm very I'm in a fortunate position where that hasn't happened. And so I, I get to look at the possibility of building a bridge, not just, you know, in the Hasidic and non-Hasidic world, but across other divides in our world today, especially. So is your dad proud of you? you know, I can't speak for him, but I don't feel like he's not. I feel like he'd be proud of me if I was doing things that were more important in his world, like be married to an Orthodox man, or at least a Jewish man, and and then to have children and grandchildren by now, right? I, what have I been waiting for? And so I think then he would be proud, but I, I think... There must be a part of him that sees my accomplishments in in a way that gives him some joy, I hope, because he certainly, you know, keeps inspiring me with his heart and his spirit.
0: Well, not for nothing, Pearl. I mean, obviously, and and let's talk about this, the fact that you received a full, bright grant to travel to your ancestral homeland is really huge. How did that come about? And that also he gave you his blessing for that, too.
1: In his own way. Yeah. I mean, he's partially responsible and I know he doesn't want to hear this, but, but he's the one who introduced me in some ways to, um, documentation through the camera because we almost never went anywhere without him carrying a super eight or some form of camera. There were cameras in the house all the time and he, in his own right as an artist. And so he would constantly, we would be in front of camera almost all the time. Like, and then we would watch it projected against the white wall on holidays um, you know, like on the Cholamoy, like in between um, the holy parts of, you know, Sukkot and and Passover, there are these four days where you could do things that are everyday and still be holidays. So those were everyone's off from work more or less, and so and certainly from school. So we would do things like watch the movies that he put together, and you know, so in many ways, uh, you know, he was a little bit of a, right, right. a push in that direction, you know. And then once that was there it was, it was hard to shake it. And then when I got the Fulbright, you know, he was at least, you know, if you're going to go to Hungary, he said, at least bring me back the couch. Well, you have to talk about that.
0: Talk about the couch because we, I teased that in the introduction.
1: Okay. Um, So first I got the Fulbright and the Fulbright was to collect Hasidic stories, which continued to inspire me. Um, And that was in 1996. I can't believe I'm saying that. And You know, it was to see who had survived there and what stories they had to tell and were they still speaking in Yiddish and so on. So I got that grant and I was going to go there. And that's when I that's when I said to my dad, I'm going to go away for a year. I got something called a Fulbright. And he said, well, if you're going to go there, at least bring me back the couch. I'm like, what couch? And that's when I found out that there was this divan. Uh, which is a couch in so many languages, divan or uh, divané, or, you know, there's so many different languages in which that is a couch, including Russian and Yiddish and Hungarian, divan. So he kind of clued me in to this couch drama in my family. So apparently there was a couch that was left there after the war, because of course, if you're fleeing, it's a little tough to uh, (laughs) schlep a a huge piece of furniture. So, you know, you kind of got to leave it behind. And so one of our cousins stayed behind to take care of the elderly that couldn't flee or, or leave. And he then became kind of an ardent, you know, socialist slash communist. And, you know, he had a pretty important job, like, running the supermarkets in Hungary. And if you think about supermarkets, that's food, that's sustenance. So he had a lot of power. So apparently there was this couch that Hasidic rebbees have slept on. A rebbe is someone that it's almost like a, a, a royal dynasty. It gets passed down from generation to generation. It's usually through blood and back to the patriarchy. It's only usually through, it's usually, it's only the men that can be rabbis, but, or rabbis but um, it could go, it's usually through the male lineage, but not always actually. And there are some very interesting exceptions, but anyway, so there's this couch that these Hasidic Rebis had slept on and the family has been fighting over it or wanting it. And my father claims that he went for it right after the wall came down. So he went in 89, 90 and uh, Baruch, the, the man that that stayed behind, uh, my grandfather's first cousin, he wanted a red Lada, which is like akin to a Lamborghini back then, you know, or, you know, as we would say in Hebrew, which is like, so not that, but still he wanted a red Lada in exchange for it. My father couldn't get it for him. So that was, uh, that was the end of that deal. And so when I went there, I tried to be kind about it because apparently he was very attached to it. Um, and that's when I started the film. And the way that I came to film it is because I met a woman named Judith Helfand, which is another amazing creative woman who makes films. So she had just done A Healthy Baby Girl, which won a Peabody Award. And I'd met her, I think, through the um, Bene Jeshurun community in ups, up, uh, the Upper West Side. And we went out for uh, Japanese food. And um, over sushi, I told her that I had been collecting these Hasidic stories. And I believe the one about the couch could be super interesting Um, I've started to collect stories about it and, you know, I might want to work with a filmmaker to make the film. And she literally took the napkin out of her lap and threw it in my face and said, struggle like the rest of us and make your own damn movie. And I swear that changed my life right then and there. And I did. And I continue to struggle like the rest of indie filmmakers. (laughs) But she threw the mantle
0: down, didn't she? She challenged you. She threw
1: the mantle down. She did. I never thought about it that way. (laughs) She did.
0: Yes, she she challenged you. But on the other hand, without deifying you, you left the only community you knew. You went to Boston to go to Brandeis University. Then you went and had a master's degree. I don't know if you were doing this solely by yourself. Maybe you didn't have this overt support. But on some level, your desire or need to make this film overrode
1: Anything else, right? I think in in many ways, it's true that passion is, and I say this to my students a lot, like passion is everything. and and you're right. Like obviously, the final push, if not the initial push, has to come from you. But there are always angels along the way. you know, film especially is such a collaborative practice. And you know, there are literally hundreds of people I could think of over the course of my last few, you know couple decades of doing films and and remember i mean i am a super indie filmmaker like i have not had the big break yet and you know so i'm like in there you know nose to the grindstone and so obviously there you know maybe it's not obvious so i'll point it out it takes a village each and every time and for each film sometimes it's the same people but we keep adding more to this kind of mobile film world or mobile movie you know um, a reality. And, and it's just, it's a beautiful thing. And maybe that is, I think you're onto something like maybe that is my new community is every time I make a film and the, and the people that I've met along the way become part of your community. I think that's probably true for a lot of filmmakers.
0: So as I mentioned in the introduction, you know, you made this film that, that started you on this road to filmmaking. But not for nothing, your films have been at, at festivals, they've won awards, so you're not
1: barking up the wrong tree. Right. And that helps a lot. Like when you get into these festivals, it really does open more doors and it's it's incredible. It's, it. But every film, and Spielberg has said this too, but it's easy for him to say, but, but every film is really, you've got to start from scratch and you really begin at point one and, and then move up with the new world that you create around it. But I've gotten great support along the way. Like having been at Tribeca has been super helpful. The Sundance Institute has been really helpful. And now there's something called Film Fatal, which I'm sure you know about, um, which is a group of female directors um, that just keeps expanding by the day. Uh, It's incredible. And it's an amazing support network as well. The bottom line is there is a growing network that's there, even if you're on this level of making your indie films. It's one of the reasons I teach is to to make it possible to do my work. I mean, I've been at Ohio University, which was super supportive of the feature that I just completed, the turnout, and Penn State also. So in some ways, you know, that's a very helpful direction. If people are considering, you know, how am I going to put food on my table, build a family, and do these things as an indie filmmaker, one of the directions is, it's not the only, obviously, but one of the directions, if you're into teaching, which I am, Is the academic world, and that's been a huge blessing.
0: So, Divan took you how long to make this film?
1: So, Divan took about four years, five years total, if you can include the festival route. Um, And then it got picked up, it was one of those miraculous moments um, where it got picked up by this terrific duo. Nancy and Emily, who own uh, Zeitgeist Films. They uh, saw the film, they picked it up. It just had this theatrical run. I mean, it just blew my mind. This was my first movie. And it's a feature-length documentary. I tried to do what I continue to do to this day, which I mean, it is a documentary, but I try to include a communal voice, like almost like a Shakespearean chorus, where you can hear other people's versions of the same struggle of finding one's identity in place right um within their family. And my hope is that because it looks so clearly at the personal, that it has more of a universal um, impact. And I still believe that's true. I tell that to my students. I, I stick to that with my own writing. That, you know, it's like, is it Grace Paley who said the personal is political? She might not be the only one, but she's certainly the one I heard. And that's, I think, very true. And I took a very big risk. My editor, Zelda Greenstein, without whom this film would never have been what it is, we were cutting a different movie. Again, originally, when I had that napkin, or what did you say, the mantle was thrown out, you know, I went ahead to make a film about Hasidic storytelling. It was zelda who looked at me in the editing room after hours and if not hundreds of hours of looking at footage and so on she said to me this is an autobiographical film and i said there's no way in hell i can do an autobiographical film and so then i watched films by agnes varda of course judith Hellfan, who did an autobiographical who does autobiographical films and Ross McAlway and Alan Berliner, these are extremely powerful storytellers. And I felt even more like, no way, but it was Zelda. Zelda pushed me really hard. Um, and she and I worked together to find the story. And then Susie Korda, another fantastic filmmaker, um, she came on board um, to help us as well with the writing. So like I said, first of all, it takes a village. And secondly, you know, taking these risks, making it as personal as you possibly can you know, in a comfortable way, whether it's literally autobiographical or autobiographically driven, something you see that irks you, that you want to make change about, that you want to tell a story about, that to me is the power of my, you know, my practice. And and I encourage others, obviously, to do the same.
0: So your first big foray is a feature-length documentary. And yeah. then you're making short films. Right. I want to know, question. yeah, why. And what is the power of a short film? what What is the need that someone has to make a short film?
1: So why I went in that direction, and I'll come to the need. And again, I, I want to be very clear. Like I love documentary filmmaking and'll continue to do so. But there's a level of the documentary practice that I'm committed to and will always, always always work with because it is my practice. But then there's the documentary film itself which I don't think is my strong suit in the same way as crafting a story using doc and fiction suit me as an artist. So I did try to make other docs. Williamsburg is another documentary. But once again, I turned the camera on myself. Then PBS hired me to do a short on, uh, or at least a segment, I should say, on this biker rally that I was going to in Ohio. And again, I turned the camera on myself. So I said, wait a minute, I'm really looking at how the world around me affects me to tell my stories right i would like to start writing fictionalized elements based on the documentary work that i do so i do continue to go in the space And interact and find people who are willing to take risks and tell their stories and push it further to find people willing to take risks to tell their stories, but might not want to literally be on camera. So I can get a little further with things. And the second thing is faster. So not to be impatient, but that, you know, documentary really is mayonnaise. You have to let it sit to really get to the story. Things have to happen. They have to change to be something that you would show on screen impactfully. And so for me, Uh, you know, something somebody said, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name. She talked about how with the documentary film, it was one thing. She can only work with what she was able to capture on camera. But writing fictional novel based on it released her. She felt she can jump off buildings and not die. And that really got me. And then people like uh, Mike Lee, filmmakers like Mike Lee, and there's so many others who have mixed the two. That really, really compelled me. Because That's my life. Like, my life is a mix. And most of us, right? Our lives are this beautiful panoply and mosaic of experiences that either torture us, um, give us joy, educate us, and, and make us hopefully, you know, change for the better as always. And so I feel like that's what my films reflect. So... That's what ended up happening. So when I started realizing that, like I was doing a lot of work for hire, a lot of doc work for hire, including the Williamsburg walking tour of Hasidic Williamsburg is part of Soundwalk, which is a really lovely organization that does these really cool walking tours around different cities. And so this um, Paris Premiere, which is a French television station, bought a number of them and then asked the people that had narrated them to do the films, which I did. And that was pretty awesome. But at that time, I was already going back to school for my MFA in fiction, because at that point, I already knew two things. I wanted to teach and I wanted to make fiction. And so that brings me to the need for shorts. So fiction is super expensive, not to say docs aren't, but you want to learn and you don't want to learn on a huge budget. So you make shorts to get, and you'll see this with a lot of um, filmmakers' trajectories, like they'll make a number of shorts and then that will get them to their feature. They'll get funding for their feature because of that. It's a little easier to get film festivals, because there's more slots for shorts. Right now, it's ridiculously tough to get into any film festivals. I mean, for better or worse, and I would say it's for better, cameras are available to almost anyone, whether it's on your phone, or if you can afford more, then you can get cameras, you know, that are a little more affordable. And then, of course, take it all the way up. But the the fact is, there's a democracy right now in the craft, and which is a fantastic thing. But it also means on the film festival side, even though there's so many more, it's really tough to get into festivals, so that's another reason for shorts. The distribution model is changing. People want to get there quick. They want to watch something for 15 minutes or 20 minutes on their commutes or whatever it is, and they want to be done, or they want to binge, like you know, a whole bunch of stuff. So you want to make you want to make uh, you have to make content that fits these new models. So those are the other reasons, and I'm sure there's more. To make shorts for me, it was to practice to make fiction. And ironically, I ended up doing my first fiction feature after doing a number of shorts, very documentary style.
0: So talk about the genesis of The Turnout and why you took that route.
1: So it's interesting because, you know, I love working with actors. It's it's probably one of my favorite things on any set is to work with actors. Um, and I love coming up with the vision and writing and all those other things. But if I had to pick a favorite today, it would be working with actors. And it'll probably be the case on many days. And so um, I love that part of making my shorts working with actors. I work with really, really talented actors. But here I was in Ohio and I was actually uh, seeing a guy who was a trucker and I went on a trip with him and we took a break at a rest stop and I noticed something called a mobile chapel and you know, having been brought up with extreme faith, as you know, right, I was intrigued. I'm always intrigued by people of faith and what keeps people connected and and inspired. And so I walk in. It's basically the back of a truck. It's, so it's the it's the trailer, um, which is the rest of the truck, not the cab, the front part. And but the cab's not there, so it's all on these like sticks, and you can walk up and there's like um, um, easy chairs and it's beautifully lit. and it's kind of like a mini church. And I'm so excited about this. And this guy comes up to me to start talking to me and asking me if I need a moment or if I want to talk about what's been ailing me or anything along those lines. And he was hard of hearing, so it was really good because I had to practice my lines a few times until I got it. (laughs) But I was like, no, I don't think anything's ailing me. I didn't say that. But I asked him about the history of this, and it turns out that this is a group of um, ministers who have put together something called... um, Uh, the Mobile Chapel. And it's in a number of truck stops across the country. And the idea is for a moment of respite for these truckers. So if they're battling an addiction, or if they just need a moment of quiet, or if they want to pray, this is where they can go. Um, And it's actually beautiful. And on the wall, I noticed that there was um, a poster from Truckers Against Trafficking, thanking in a way truckers for being the eyes and ears of America and turning in. Uh, People that they think are being trafficked and helping them be freed from what's called the life. Right. And that perked my ears. And when I was in college at Brandeis, one of the things that kind of got me through was I used to uh, volunteer at what they then, at those days, they used to call it the Battered Women's Shelter. And so um, I called them and got some information and started to talk to Jim, who uh, was the person that I was seeing, about we you know, this situation. And he said to me, which literally went into the film, these women who work the trucks want to be there. It's a it's a lifestyle choice. And I said, let me tell you something without starting any research at all, I can tell you right off the bat, that's not true. And so that's what started my journey of trying to figure out what does trafficking look like in the United States. I had no idea what I discovered later, which is like 85 to 90%. And you can get these statistics on the Polaris website, which is the National Human Trafficking Hotline website, it's an easy Google, Um, about 85 to 90%, if not more, of prostitution is trafficking, without a question, because there is either the underage element, the coercion as their underage element, or uh, it's just simply this outright straight trafficking, which is straight out coercion. So there's different forms of coercion. And the bottom line is, if they don't keep the money, they're being enslaved,
0: In other words, these young women—they're approached by these truckers and ostensibly paid for sex.
1: So to back up, it's the pimps who I'm now going to start calling the pimp traffickers as we continue to talk because I don't call them pimps anymore. The pimp traffickers bring women and sometimes boys over to the truck stops and anywhere else where they believe there's a demand. So it's not only truckers; it's anywhere where they believe there's a demand. And when you look at the the struggles of the road and the loneliness on the road, they're prey for these pimp traffickers. Like there's lonely men out there and, and women and they feel that they can take advantage of that. And so they do. Um, and in fact, a lot of the movements to change what's happening in this country with trafficking is toward the concept of ending the demand. That's why they call it the End Demand Act, which just got passed in Ohio. They're trying to ask Johns to be part of the change. But, yes, they do bring prostitutes to or they bring women over to be prostituted in these truck stops because they're there overnight. Um, they do the same in hotels. They do the same in um, the Super Bowl. They do the same, you know, or other big events. They do the same in nail salons um, and various other locations where the predators feel that there's a good demand and they can take advantage of it. But we should back up a little because they also start as early as where they find their prey. So they're looking for people who are vulnerable, whether it's because of um, poverty or because of lack of support in a family system or community system or drug um, addiction, which they try and get them addicted really early. So they can't shake it and there's the need for their pimp traffickers. So these are all now legally considered coercions. And the more I thought about it, the more I decided to write a piece, and so back to Truckers Against Trafficking, so they thank truckers for calling it in. What truckers have been doing because they see what's going on. There's women, I'm not saying there aren't women that have chosen this life. If they've chosen to be there, that's their choice. But if they're there against their will, there are ways in which truckers can be helpful So they call this hotline and the hotline sends in an advocate instead of calling the police because not all police officers have been trained yet on exactly how to handle it. So there isn't the revolving door. If there's one note here to get away from um, this talk about this particular project, it's very important to call the hotline because they send in an advocate who knows how to assess the situation. They're trained. They know to know whether or not they're being trafficked. They know what to do next not to endanger this person further. So when I learned about all this, I decided to go for someone who believes that they're a bystander. And I thought about the victims. And I thought about what my grandmother, who's a survivor of the Holocaust, said to me about films, you know, it's like they're killing us over and over again on screen. And I was like, you know what, I'm not, she just hates watching, hated watching Holocaust films, because she just thought it perpetrated it further. So I thought about you know, maybe I won't do something about the victim either. I wanna look at someone who perceives themselves as a bystander, and that's the John. That's the lonely guy who I'm, I'm not vilifying in any way, you know, who's hiring someone for commercial interaction, which he believes he's paying for for company, or what they call commercial company. And I wanted to look at that, especially after what Jim said to me. And so he and I started to uh, travel around, he helped me tremendously to access truckers and talk to them. And I started to learn something even more disturbing because when we were interviewing truckers and not survivors, because I had interviewed survivors also, one trucker said to me, "Actually, I was trafficked at this truck stop by my own father."
0: Oh my this god! Is a, a,
1: yes, and you can hear a pin drop. Like this is not what we expected. We were set for like cool trucker stories. Like we were in badass mode, you know? Right. When I realized that the people are being trafficked in their own families that's when I decided that it's not only about domestic trafficking, it's literally about inner family domestic trafficking and looking at how drugs and the need to get high played a huge part in it. So it took me about four years to make the film. So two of those years was research. And um, the most powerful part of the research for me was when I was running out of time because I got hired by Penn State and I was going to have to leave town and I had done all this work and, you know, met the truck stop lady who owns the truck stop and, or or at least managed it and met these truckers and met these survivors. And I was like, how am I going to do this all over again in Pennsylvania? And that's when it hit me. And so I asked them, would they be willing to be in the film as parts of the story that I'm using that they've actually gone through? And a lot of them said yes. And that was the most powerful part of it. So Jen plays the trucker. Barbara Freeman, who's a survivor of 25 years of trafficking, plays uh, an advocate. Uh, This young lady, Regina Westerviller, who has her own story she wasn't originally sharing, but now that she watched the movie, she's open about it. Her own story about struggling with trafficking and the uh, opioid crisis in in the United States, and specifically in her town, because her father was a dealer she herself had experience with being trafficked. So she plays the young the victim. And so she was really accessing a lot of her own experiences, which I used um, with permission, obviously, when I wrote it. So a lot of this stuff um, is pretty it's pretty layered. And so that for me was like the end of the research and the starting of the actual development of the project. And we shot it within uh, one summer in two thousand and fourteen. Actually, again, because I had, like, run out of time and, and had to make some quick decisions, I actually worked with my students. So that was pretty exciting. Um, teeny-weeny budget. And then this summer of 2015, we did pickups. But I, I had a local New York uh, editor who's amazing, Kristen Sprake. And he was, you know, I felt like we were, were cutting divan again. Like, we were we were combing through this footage like it was a documentary just to find the moments that would make it work, even though it was scripted. Because so much of it had that documentary feel, feel exactly to it. Yeah. As, yeah, it's exactly what you describe. Like you don't know what's around the corner and but we're rolling,
0: you know. It's not just about making the movie. It becomes it becomes your raison d'etre and it it it's so it's so nuanced and it's so deep. And it really sounds to me in this conversation that we've had that you've, you know, from when you knew you had to do this, this is just part of your dna now this is the match this is who you are and how wonderful for you that you were able to find this
1: i think that's an excellent summation i mean really i should probably quote you on that in my director statement but that's what <laughs> it comes down. it's just when you're doing the work you're in it and you don't have the distance to see the full picture but i think that's right it is in my dna
0: I'm going to speak on your family's behalf. As far as I'm concerned, they should be very proud of you. And for the the creative, and I'm going to call this public service, that you have engaged in is just really wonderful. And I want to thank you for cinematically sharing your story and for verbally (laughs) sharing your story with me. I wish you continued success and you have an open invitation to come back and uh, update us on your professional and personal activities. You'll take me up on that?
1: Oh my God, of course. Anytime. I have to say this has been a great uh, conversation and I I just love how you're seeing things. And I also really love uh, listening to uh, some of your other podcasts. I've been doing that over the last few days. So thank you for what you do and really appreciate being given an opportunity to talk about my work with you.
0: Well, you join a, a hell of a roster of terrific, creative, accomplished women. So Pearl Gluck, much more continued success. And thank you again for being my guest today. Thank you for having me. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.